You are listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about how prisons are designed to be invisible. This next story shines a light on one part of that system, how a third of people in prison have at least one disability, and how that's not part of the story most people hear about prisons. Our media and lawmakers don't often link these two issues, incarceration and disabilities. Cheryl Green shares this next story. Cheryl understands the power of pop culture in shaping public perception of marginalized people. She's a filmmaker. She just shot a documentary about artists who have traumatic brain injuries. She's also, by the way, the person who transcribes each episode of this podcast, champion transcriptionist. Just a warning, this story has discussion of some pretty harsh realities. Cheryl will be talking about racist and ableist trauma, profiling, and a history of abuse. If you don't think you want to hear about that right now, just come back to this another time. Before the Declaration of Independence was even signed, the fledgling United States of America already had mental institutions, taking people considered insane out of their homes and tucking them into specialized hospitals. Sometimes they got treatment, sometimes they were shackled, starved, and abused. People with psychiatric disabilities were jailed more often than placed in hospitals in the early days. In the 1830s, a Boston schoolteacher named Dorothea Dix took a job teaching people in prison in Massachusetts. While she didn't go into the job as an activist, what she saw in the prison appalled her. She started to report on how living conditions were brutal and the people in prison, many with psychiatric disabilities, were abused and starved by their jailers. She started a movement that expanded the reach of our psychiatric hospitals, but it was no miracle fix. While a lot has changed in the last 180 years, patterns of abuse in long-term care facilities and jails repeat endlessly to this day. Right now, in the United States, there are more people with psychiatric disabilities in jail or prison than there are in psych hospitals, and incarcerated populations represent people with a huge array of physical, cognitive, and sensory impairments and deaf people. If she were around today, Dorothea Dix would be outraged at how it's once again easier to wind up behind bars than in a specialized hospital. Our current incarceration rates have something to do with our response to the abuse of institutions. In 1955, President John F. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act, a law intended to end the isolation and segregation of disabled people in archaic institutions by pushing funding out of institutions and into home and community-based care. Almost every American family at some stage will experience or has experienced a case of mental affliction. And we have to offer something more than crowded custodial care in our state institutions. Our task is to prevent these conditions. Our next is to treat them more effectively and sympathetically in the patient's own community. I hope the Congress will act on this bill. But even as the nation shut down institutions, funding for community care has still not reached levels needed to keep most people with complex care needs in their homes. We shuttered the warehouses and gave people nowhere to go. And as a culture, we never address the ableist biases that led us to want to lock up disabled people in the first place. The politics of who gets assigned a label of disability ties into racism, homophobia, and sexism. Until the 1970s, homosexuality was considered a mental illness and for many years a crime. Then during lunch, Ralph showed him some pornographic pictures. Jimmy knew he shouldn't be interested, but well, he was curious. 
What Jimmy didn't know was that Ralph was sick, a sickness that was not visible like smallpox, but no less dangerous and contagious, a sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual, a person who demands an intimate relationship with members of their own sex. Many people who were LGBT were incarcerated in prisons and psych wards. Likewise, 19th century doctors had great confidence that the only reason an enslaved African or African American might run away was because they must be suffering an alleged mental illness that they called drapetomania. And we all know the fabulous diagnosis of hysteria, something that can only happen to someone with a uterus. In early 20th century thinking, someone's uterus, supposedly detached from its spot in the abdomen, navigated itself to the brain and destroyed the person's ability to think rationally. Today, these biases still all work tragically in tandem. Estimates now find that between one-half and one-third of people killed by police have a disability. For me, these aren't just distant statistics. They're a constant danger in my own community of people with disabilities from traumatic brain injury. I've seen friends with traumatic brain injuries be incarcerated instead of getting rehab when they've spiraled into houselessness, driving under the influence, attempting suicide, and abusing drugs, all common for a lot of people with TBI. Disability and deafness are often criminalized when people don't walk, talk, or respond to police in the way the officers expect them to. When I think specifically about why people who acquire their disability as adults like I did are more likely to wind up in jail than non-disabled people, I think back to the time I got kicked off an airplane in 2013. This was back when I used to get completely devastated when anyone changed my plans, something the brain injury really brought out in me. I had requested pre-boarding and then to have someone hoist my bag into the overhead bin for me, both of which are my rights under the law. They refused, and I imploded. I didn't want to cause a fuss, so I withdrew into a little ball. As my rage and frustration built, I crushed my glasses in my fist, obliterating them, and I refused to speak for fear that I'd only be able to scream. I was trying to make myself silent and invisible. But that was too much for the flight crew. They demanded I leave the plane, saying I was, quote, a safety hazard, and that the pilot refused to fly with someone who refused to communicate. When I made it back to the waiting area, I was in a sobbing rage. I threw my bags down and started cussing at the top of my lungs. Luckily, in cases of disability-related incidents, airlines are required by law to call in a specially trained complaints resolution official the glasses I'd crushed had prism lenses to point my eyes in the same direction. Without them, the people, carts, and rolling bags were visually disorienting, and I kept getting lost trying to walk in a straight line. So the official held my hand as we walked to keep me from running into anyone. He got me a new ticket on the next flight. Then he led me to the employee lounge and let me wait there. When I got on my flight five hours later, I was too exhausted to care about my own frustrations. That made it easier to stay calm and follow orders and sit still. Thinking back to this incident, I know even though it wasn't a good situation, it could have turned out so much worse. Airports aren't exempt from police and TSA brutality. What kept it from escalating to that? I 
honestly believe it had a lot to do with the fact that I'm a small, cisgender, white woman. It's my privilege that kept me from being incarcerated. A lot of disabled people don't wind up as lucky as I was that day. The incarcerated population is three to four times more likely to report having a disability than non-incarcerated people. Storytellers from the AVID Prison Project report barriers they face that are pretty universal, such as having their wheelchairs taken away, being refused medical attention or prescriptions, and being punished and isolated instead of given accommodations, many of which are inexpensive and straightforward. Last year, I listened to activists and artists on a panel about race, disability, art, and incarceration held in Seattle. Dorian Taylor talked about their experiences being abused as a child and how their responses to abuse was seen as just acting out. Well, first of all, I just um, I want to start out by saying that um, I feel really honored to be here because um, statistically, I should not be here right now. That is something that I think is important to start off this conversation with, is that statistically, these systems are designed to keep people like myself away from these environments, is to keep me institutionalized. One thing that is different when people mention the school to prison pipelines and when they, they mention um, different forms of incarceration is that when you grow up like I did, you were never told that you could do anything besides end up in an institution. My incarceration started with mental institutions at nine years old. As a black Native American child labeled mentally ill instead of the victim of abuse, they got no counseling and care. Instead, they got incarceration in a mental institution and chemical incarceration through psychiatric drugs, leading to a cycle of isolation and further abuse. I used to go to a brain injury support group. Not long after my airport incident, a police chief came to our meeting to talk about police encounters. She told us about how we should wear medical alert bracelets listing our disabilities so officers can ideally view us as disabled, not non-compliant. I ordered one online that same day. I was scared I might lash out in public again. I was afraid of a cop touching me. I was afraid of a cop punishing me for imploding and not responding, even though for me, it would be self-preservation. The bracelet said to speak slowly, quietly, and calmly. It said to write things down. I can't remember what else is said because I lost it. As many disability rights and justice activists state, this is not a matter of individual people's personal shortcomings, flaws, or failures. Disability and deafness are not, quote, what's wrong with you. Being disabled or deaf means existing in and creatively adapting to an inaccessible world while honoring and celebrating all aspects of your identity. Nowadays, I have much more self-control and I can communicate better under stress. With these added privileges, I don't have fear around my own situation anymore because I pass as non-disabled. Thanks are due to disability justice activists, like those using the hashtag DangerouslyDisabled on Twitter, to share first-hand experiences around policing and incarcerating disabled and deaf people. Usually, in our media and pop culture, disability is considered a downer of a subject. Disability stories are considered niche 
but they're not niche. Disabled people exist in every culture and community in the U.S. The imperative that we be hidden away in locked buildings is based on a culture's values, not a universal inevitability. It's up to us to keep up the fight for basic rights, such as living in the community. And we can't stop there, because disability rights are only part of one step in the call for disability justice. After hearing Cheryl's essay, I wanted to talk to her more about the role pop culture can play in changing the way our society treats people with traumatic brain injuries. So I gave her a call. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking time to talk. Yeah. Hey, so I wanted to talk to you about the role that pop culture plays specifically in representing disabilities and this whole issue around uh, people with disabilities being more likely to be incarcerated. Um, Because I think it's something that's not on a lot of people's radars. Mm. And so I was wondering, so you have traumatic brain injury yourself. Can you talk to me about some ways you've seen traumatic brain injury be represented in films and on TV? Are there any characters who come to mind? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, really only two come to mind. And that might be because I have such a terrible memory. But um, I think I I haven't actually seen TBI a lot in fiction. But, um, you know, uh, it is usually the butt of a joke or it's just some little plot device to to um, excuse or explain somebody's odd behavior. You know, the first one that comes to mind is Fifty First Dates. Have you seen that? Yeah. So in that, somebody gets a head injury, right? And then keeps forgetting, gets constant amnesia? Yeah, yeah. So that is my favorite film to hate. And you've basically got um, most of the plot. That's a pretty thin, boring plot. Um, But that's it. (laughs) And the thing is, it is so racist and transphobic and misogynistic. And I mean, it is just all around a really bad film. But the deal is, is that I see brain injury support organizations Um, They're always giving out these handouts to families who have a new TBI survivor here. Check out, you know, media. Check out characterizations of TBI. What can you expect with your new person? And Fifty First Dates is on the top of the list. And it's so, so awful. But, I mean, what else can they recommend? There's hardly anything out there. But it's just, it's unrealistic. It's reductionist. And really, the TBI puts her in a position where she is just completely manipulated and abused, and that's where the humor lies. So it's horrid. The The one good film that I can balance it out with is The Lookout. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't even heard of that. Okay, I recommend that. Yeah, who has heard of it? Because it's a movie about a guy with a TBI. But it is so good. I I think I watched it three times in one weekend when I rented it. But that's also partly because I get obsessive. But it was good. But the thing is, it's a drama about a guy who also gets totally coerced and manipulated, but into criminal activity, specifically because he's vulnerable. Now, what new family wants to watch that? Here you go. Your loved one is just coming out of a coma. Watch this. So nobody would want to watch that, but it's so realistic. And to me, it's so valuable because because it isn't just about making fun of the TBI survivor or just taking advantage. You really see um, how ableist people are and how people can take some strange pleasure in really hurting people who are vulnerable. What felt different to you about the representation of um, the person with traumatic brain injury in the lookout versus something that you 
hey, like 50 first dates, what was different? The subtleties, uh, first of all, the impairments that he represented were completely realistic and extremely, extremely common. Like he had um, memory difficulties and he had trouble generating, you know, coming up with ideas and coming up with complete sentences. And he had all the cupboards were labeled in his house, you know, where the spoons are and where that, well, who puts spoons in a, I guess I put spoons in a cupboard, but, you know, cups and plates, they were labeled to help him be oriented. And his sense of humor was affected, you know, when people used figurative language. Those things are so realistic. And again, it was like the the social environment, the context that he was in, where people were manipulating him to get something they wanted because they saw they saw he was vulnerable, um, as opposed to manipulating the character just to make the audience laugh. That was a big difference that I saw. And so you're a filmmaker yourself, and some of your work focuses on people with traumatic brain injuries. Um, what notes do you try to hit when you talk about traumatic brain injuries in the films that you make, which are mostly documentaries? So um, there's a couple things I try to hit. One is um, I absolutely reject and, well, reject. I refuse to show graphic images um, either of crashes or wrecks or of people in a coma with the neck brace and the tubes and the black eyes and all that. Um, There's a lot of that out there, and I find that very triggering and grotesque. And, you know, I mean, when you're in a coma, you really can't consent to anything, Um, And so there's a lot of people who are very empowered by showing these pictures of when they were comatose and when they were severely injured. For me, I find it triggering and I find it um, such a, it sets people up to be freak show subjects. So I'm going to look at you in this coma and think about how you've got all these impairments and losses. And that's all I care about. That's your whole story. That's what ends up happening a lot. So what I try to do is I avoid and um, stay away from graphic descriptions of trauma and pain and graphic images of those things. And instead, I try to focus on the, the consequences like social isolation, stigma, ableism, poverty, um, all kinds of misunderstandings. Because to me, that's, that, there's much more potential for social change when we talk about how we're all responsible for caring for each other with or without TBI. Um, as opposed to most TBI media, which is about overcoming adversity and terrible wrecks and, you know, what's wrong with you and ooh, just lots of details that are really um, divorced from someone's actual life context. Let's make the link between disabilities and incarceration and pop culture. Do you remember when you first started thinking about these issues being tied together? And what role do you think pop culture should play in putting this reality on our on our radar I first started really thinking about it when um, I I had a couple of predators early on when I had much more impairment than I have now and it took a lot of effort for people to convince me that I that I had predators that these people were preying on me and um, and I started paying attention to stories of my peers with brain injury and hearing the, the things that they were doing, the behaviors they had that were unacceptable in society, but they made perfect sense to me. I felt like, oh, I know why you would do that. I know why you're having that problem. I feel like I could have that problem um, if I didn't have as much support and privilege as I have. I would have a lot of those problems, too. Um, then when I started filming my documentary on artists with TBI, I heard some very uncomfortable stories. Um, and I started thinking more about... Um, 
domestic violence and into intimate partner violence and how my guess is 100 percent of survivors of domestic violence have had a hit to their head or 100 hits to the head. And and I was thinking about, you know, how that um, makes it harder for people to comply with programs like transitional housing services or homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, prisons or jails. The more TBI disability you have, the harder it is to follow instructions and be in these loud, crowded places with these rigid schedules. And I just really started thinking about how um, if you don't have the safe, secure home life that I have, where do people end up? That was Cheryl Green. In addition to being a writer, filmmaker, and activist, she also transcribes every episode of this podcast. Champion transcriptionist. Thanks, Cheryl. Cheryl.